You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. What a difference seven days of weather can make. I certainly miss being with each of you last weekend. Last weekend, we were supposed to do part two of our new series, Following the Excellent Way, but now we're doing it this weekend. Over the course of 2018, we're going to be taking six weekends to talk about the three excellent virtues of the Christian faith, which are faith, hope, and love. Last weekend, this week, we considered the greatest of these virtues, which is love. I think, I don't know about you, but I think when I look at our culture, that our culture has a complicated relationship with love. You can even see this by the songs that we have sung, which have been popular over the past couple decades. Many decades since when I was born. Some of you might know what the Beatles said about love. Can someone say it out loud? Just tell me, what do the Beatles say about love? All you need is love, apparently. That's not what Tina Turner said, though. Man, this song's been playing in my mind all morning. Y'all know what Tina Turner said about love? Tell me. What's love got to do with it? Who needs a heart when the heart can be broken, right? A little more maybe in my generation. Who, who knows what the black-eyed peas said about love? What did the black-eyed peas say about love? Where is the love, right? right? All you need is love. What's love got to do with it? Where is the love? we got a complicated relationship with love in our culture. Moreover, I think the way that our culture expresses love and values love actually dilutes what Christian love really is. Last week we learned that Christian love is satisfying, that it's rich, that it's pure, that it's measureless, and it's seen in its most density, greatest density at the cross of Jesus Christ. See, true Christian love, like the gospel, is a sacrificial giving of oneself for the good of others, even if they can't give anything else to us in return. But when I look at our culture, the way that they view love and talk about love is uh, simple and easy, like... Love is just tolerating our differences. Love is love. Christian love is not that simple or easy. Or some people uh, raise the bar a little bit and they think that uh, love is empathy. As long as they just feel for someone. Others think that uh, love is just civility. As long as I stay in my lane and don't bother you, that's, that's love. For... Or maybe that uh, love is generosity. As long as I give, but just putting someone some, uh, coin in someone's coffee cup, is that all love really is? Certainly these things might be an aspect of the expression of love, but it's not Christian love. Christian love is so significant that if we don't have it as a church, we might as well lock the door, shut it down, and go home. Because 1 Corinthians 13 says, if we don't have love, we are nothing, and we have nothing. So today, having understood last week what Christian love truly is, today we need to understand how can we express it. What is required of us 
if we are going to follow the excellent way of love. Just like last week, 1 John chapter 4 is going to guide us in our task today. So I hope you would open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, and stand with me as we read 1 John chapter 4, verse 12 to verse 21. This is God's word. It speaks to us today, and this is what it says. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have to come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. You may be seated. If we're going to follow the excellent way of love, what is required of us today? God's word is going to answer this question. Here's the first thing. If you're taking notes, I hope you are. Write this down. If we're going to follow the excellent way of love, then we must abide with God. We will follow the excellent way of love as we abide with God. Did you notice how many times from verse 12 to verse uh, 16 the word abide shows up? A lot of times. Look at verse 16. So we have come to know and believe that God, the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. We cannot display Christian love unless we're abiding with God. So this is a good place to start the message. What is abiding? I'd say it like this. Abiding is actively dwelling with God's presence and enjoying the goodness of his company. Abiding is actively dwelling with God's presence and enjoying the goodness of his company. Believers in Jesus alone are qualified to abide with God because by faith in Jesus, they've been made a dwelling place for God. Listen to this verse, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him. And eat with him, and he with me. Christian God wants to dwell with you. He wants you to enjoy his company. Are you abiding with him? 
It's such a remarkable privilege that we have even to abide with God's presence. Think on this. The scripture says that God is omnipresent. That his presence is so great and so vast that it cannot be contained in the heavens. That he fills the entire earth and yet he wants to dwell with you. Are you making it a priority to dwell with the presence of the God you believe in? Or do you treat God like a necessary roommate? Imagine that you needed a new apartment and you found a really sweet spot on Kijiji, right close to work, right next to the gym, really close to the nightlife, and it's perfect except a little too perfect and a little out of your budget. But you're a smart person, so you know what to do. You're going to get a roommate. But you don't care who the roommate is. You're not looking for a friend. You're just looking for someone to cover the rent. So you just put an ad up on Craigslist and find any old person, and you don't really care to have, share company with this person, you, but you recognize you need this person to enjoy the benefit of that apartment. Hey, roommate, is the rent paid? Good. Hey, roommate, is the kitchen in order? Good. Then you do you and I'll do me. I think some of us treat the presence of God like this. Hey, God, I really want this thing that you offer called, like, forgiveness. Hey, God, I really want this thing that you offer called, like, hope. Uh, But I don't really care that much about spending time with you. Are my sins still paid for, God? Good. Is my future still secure, God? Good. Then you do you, and I'll do me. Now, I doubt many of us would say this with our words, but I think we prove this with our prayerlessness. I think we prove it by neglecting his word. Because Jesus said in John 15, the way that we abide with God is by filling ourselves with his word and seeking after him in prayer. You see, Christian, when you open up the book, you're not just reading a book, you're hearing a voice, the voice of the supreme being who spoke the words into existence and he wants to speak to you. When you pray to God, you're not speaking aimless words into the air, you're speaking to the ear of the God who wants to hear from you. Are you abiding with God? But you might say, Jason, I know I should, I know I want to, but I'm just too busy. I'm just too tired. You're right. We are too busy. And we are too tired. And those are the same excuses I give for neglecting to dwell with God. But, Christian, the kind voice of your loving God reaches out to the busy and says, you may be busy, but one thing is truly necessary. Isn't that what Jesus told Martha? Martha invited Jesus to come over to her house. 
But Martha didn't spend time with Jesus. She was too busy fixing things and serving things for Jesus to actually enjoy the company of Jesus. Oh, but her sister, her sister was enjoying company with Jesus, but then she got angry at her sister. Why shouldn't she helping me? Why is she over there with you? Shouldn't she be helping me? Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and anxious about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. Having a clear inbox is not the good portion, and it will be taken away from you because it's going to get filled up again. Having perfect grades is not the good portion and can be taken away from you. Improving your fitness is not the good portion. Improving your education is not the good portion. Making sure your kids have all the top and extracurricular activities is not the good portion. There is only one thing that is guaranteed to you, Christian. There is only one thing that is the good portion. And that is the presence of God. What are you choosing to put in its place? You might say, I'm too busy. You might say, I'm too tired. Well, you know what, friend, brothers and sisters, the kind voice of our loving Father reaches out to you and says, you may be too tired. So come, find your rest in me. It's not weakness to admit you're weak. It's human to admit you're weak. It's weakness of faith to know you're weak and try to keep continuing on in your own strength when God offers you his divine strength that you can find from his presence. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And consider how this is significant for the way that we show love. Love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. That means that it's not something that we can manufacture and produce ourselves. The Holy Spirit must produce it in us. How can we produce true Christian love if we are not abiding in the Holy Spirit? Christians who are disconnected from the word of God and prayer cannot produce love. Let us choose the good portion. Receive the love of God and thereby show it to others. If we're going to follow the excellent way of love, what will be required of us? We must abide with God and we must understand what it means that we overcome with Christ. This is something that you can write down if you're taking notes. We must understand what it means that we overcome with Christ. Look back at the book with me, verse 17. Verse 17 says this, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he, that's Jesus, as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. 
If we're going to follow the excellent way of love, then we need to understand what it means that we overcome with Christ. We will follow this way as we overcome with Christ. Well, as we overcome what? The Word of God says it. As we overcome fear of the final day of judgment. Now understand this, Christian. There is a fear of God that we must have. And if we don't have it, your life will be characterized as completely and utterly foolish and absent from God. Proverbs chapter 1 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. This is a divine respect, that reverence. We need this fear of God. But if you're a Christian, you don't need to cower in terror, fearing that when you do stand before God at the final judgment day in the future, that you don't know what's going to happen. You see, there is a day where everyone in this room, the youngest child to the oldest adult, everyone where you will stand before a judge, Jesus, and you will have to give account for your deeds. How does that make you feel? If you have believed in Jesus, you don't need to fear because you stand before God guiltless, forgiven. If you've never believed in Jesus, if the thought of that made you fearful because you know that if you stood before God, the hammer would go down and you would be counted guilty, then know that the same one who judges you, Jesus, first came to the world not to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For the Son did not come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, friend, Jesus suffered for your guilty sins so that you could be saved from your guilty sins and enjoy eternal and abundant life with God. Believe in him today and in a moment you will no longer be in debt and guilty before God, but you will be counted as righteous before God and loved. Yet, why do Christians still fear the final day of judgment? This is theologically true, but some of us still fear that final day. Why is that? I believe it's because many Christians have a very skewed perspective of the nature of God. They think about God in a way that doesn't accurately reflect who God is. And be sure, brothers and sisters, the way you think about God and the way you think God thinks about you will determine the way you relate to him. Maybe you think about God in one of these ways. Some people think about God like he's the next best thing to Santa Claus. Anything I need, 
If I'm going to be happy, I can just fold my hands, close my eyes, and maybe God's going to give it to me. Oh, God, I want to be as popular as that other person. Oh, God, I hope I have all the same tech toys that they do. Oh, God, I want to get into this school. And He's a thing-giving being that is just here to make you happy. That's not a God you can love. Because where's that God when everything crushes and a thing won't? Satisfy your broken soul. Do you think about God like that? Some people think about God uh, like a mean gym teacher. In the past two services, there were gym teachers, so I don't think this represents you. But I think like maybe some popular TV movies can display gym teachers like this, right? Gym teachers, mean gym teachers show favorites, right? And they always do what they can to uh, make fun and embarrass the less athletic kids. They favor the athletic kids and always put the less athletic kids in bad situations, throwing the dodgeball at them. Climb up the rope, I can't climb, climb it! And everyone just laughs as the guy can't climb up the rope. And maybe that's what you think about God. Man, it seems like God plays favorites and I can never be as righteous and as godly as they are. You can't love that type of a God because that type of a God, I mean, you, you know you got to listen to him because he's the teacher, he's got the authority, but you could never love him because he plays favorites. Or maybe you think about God like this. God's the corrupt cop God. One day he might be acting for your good, but you don't know the next day if he's acting for his own self-interest. And every time you're around him, you're just apprehensive and you feel like, why am I always feel like I'm tr in trouble? It says like to serve and protect, but it feels like just whenever I'm around him, I'm going to get in trouble. You can't love a God like that. At best, you'll be indifferent and just avoid him. At worst, you will rage against him in anger. If you have believed in God, then you must hold fast to that one aspect of how God has chosen to reveal himself to you and not let go of it. It's sorrowful because this aspect of the nature of God is so diluted and so diminished in our culture. Movies diminish it. Books diminish it. They try to absolutely erase the fact that God primarily reveals himself to us in the New Testament as our Father. For 28 years, I've had the responsibility as a son. For four of those 28 years, God's given me the responsibility as a husband. And now, God's given me a new responsibility as of January 17th this year as a father. Thankfully, my dad is a great example to me of what it means to be a father. And I want to be a good dad. But our culture and Christians sometimes diminish the fact that God is our father because we see really bad examples of fathers in our culture. Maybe you don't have the same experience as I do of a good dad. Thankfully, the Heavenly Father is not at all like bad dads. Thankfully, 
the heavenly father is nothing at all like good dads. He is way infinitely better. Even a dad who wants to be faithful can still fail to keep his word. Even a dad who wants to be faithful and wants to give his kids the things that they need can still neglect to meet their needs. But our heavenly father always keeps all of his promises. Our heavenly father will give us anything we need and knows what we need even before we ask it. He even gave us his only son before we recognized we needed the son's forgiveness. He is for you, friend. He is for you in the same way that he is for his only begotten son. And verse 17 says, as he is, so are we. The son is well pleased by the father. And as Christ is, so are you well pleased by the father. The Son has overcome sin and death and is the ultimate victor as Christ is victorious. So are you, Christian. You don't need to fear your father. You don't need to stand at an arm's distance to the one who has his arms open to you. And consider how this is significant for the way that we display love. If we're fearful of God, how can we want to abide with him? We will not abide with God if his love is not perfected in us, if we're still walking in fear. But when his love is being perfected in us, when we know we don't need to fear, we will want to abide with the Father. And the more we abide with him, the more we will show his love to others. This is the way we follow the excellent way of love. We will follow it as we abide with God, as we overcome with Christ. And then finally, we will overcome, excuse me, we will follow the excellent way of love as we obey from the heart. We will follow the excellent way of love As we obey from the heart. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 20 to 21. I hope you get your eyes back in the book. I don't want to speak anything of my own opinion or perspective, but the book, God's word is authoritative. So get your eyes back in there with me. Verse 20. It says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. We will follow the excellent way of love as we obey from the heart. I know we're late into the sermon, but I think you guys are smart and attentive and can um, bear the weight of a short systematic theology lesson, all right? Two points to this short systematic theology lesson. Point number one, God is a person. That means that God shares all the qualities of personhood and personality that you do. 
Just like you can love someone and receive love, God can love and receive love. Just like you can be angered and show anger, God can be angered and show angered. God can grieve. God can sorrow. God rejoices. God is a person. Okay, point number two in our systematic theology lesson, God is a person, but God is also a spirit. That means that the one whom we love is one who is invisible. He cannot be seen, yet he can be loved just as you can love your neighbor, just as you can love your spouse, just as you can love your kids, and even more so. Yet, it's always easier to act by faith, or excuse me, to act by sight than by faith, isn't it? But Christianity teaches that we should walk by faith and not by sight. What this means then, see how you can go from theology to practice? What this means is that it is impossible to say that you love the invisible God if you do not love your visible neighbor. Now, in context here, the people whom we are told to love are our brothers, the family of faith. The people who we must love first are other Christians. Certainly, it applies to the world. But we cannot say, it's impossible to say, I love God if you do not love other Christians. Listen to this verse in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 to 18. It says... By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Remember, remember, love isn't just empathy. Love isn't tolerance. Love isn't civility. Love isn't generosity. Love is the sacrificial self-giving in a way that doesn't expect anything in return. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay our life down for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Tell me, if we don't have love, what do we have? Maybe we have lovelessness. But that's just the negation of the positive. Is there a negative to the positive? What's the word that's the anti-love? It's hate. I think our culture often thinks about hate as like maliciously aggressive. Like the people who are hateful are the people who paint swastikas on like signs and go parade them down the streets with tiki torches, right? Those are the hateful people, right? Yeah, I don't think that hate... And I don't think the Bible's explanation for hate is merely the maliciously aggressive. I think the way that we most often show hate is not being maliciously aggressive, but being intentionally evasive. Jesus actually told a story about someone who had the world's needs but closed off their heart and did not serve that person. Do you remember this story? There are three characters in this story, really. 
There was one who was like maliciously aggressive and beat someone on the street and robbed them and left them to die. Do you remember this story? The Good Samaritan. But it wasn't about the maliciously aggressive person. It was about the two intentionally evasive people who saw the man beaten on the ground and passed over the other side. The maliciously aggressive person failed to love, just like the intentionally evasive person failed to love. The only person who showed love is the one who bent down, picked them up, bind their wounds, paid for their medical attention. The key to love is not in words, but in actions from a heart that is open to others because it's open to God. Having love, but having it in word only, is like having the key to an endless hall of treasure. And the one who gives you the key says, there's enough in here for anyone you meet and it cannot be exhausted, so share it all. But instead of bringing people to the door, opening it with the key and letting them take as much as they want, Loving in words only is like taking a little treasure out of that treasure hall, locking the door behind you, putting that treasure behind a glass wall in a museum, and taking people on tours through that every day. Oh, you've shown lots of people this love. You tell them about it every day. But you've never let them share in it. That's not love. And if we do not have love, we have nothing, and we are nothing. The key to love is not in words, but in actions from a heart that is open to others because it's open to God. So I ask you, church, what reason can a Christian give to close their heart off to other Christians? What reason? The Bible gives a few, and there's one that I would say I need to address. I don't represent, believe it represents our church as a whole, but it's in the text, so it needs to be said. I think one of the reasons people justify closing their heart off to other Christians is because they're hypocritical liars. I don't believe this represents our church as a whole, but it needs to be said because it's in the text. If you are here today and you say, I love God, but you have never once invested into Christian community and intentionally avoided relationships with other believers for your entire life, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. There are people who you might get along with well. They were called the Pharisees. Stop deceiving yourself. Stop thinking that you are right before God. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, 
And if love does not abide in you, God does not abide in you. Repent of your self-righteousness. Recognize that you are the one who's beaten on the road because of your own sin. But Jesus came and wants to lift you up. Receive his love. And you will begin to know how to show it to others. There are a lot of reasons why, why we could give justification for not loving. Here are a few others. Maybe these represent you. Uh, maybe you are intentionally evasive to loving in Christian community because you've actually been hurt by Christian community. And you're afraid to go back because you're still burned. I hope that, that if this is you, you would hear from us today that you're loved and we will be patient with you. Let Harvest be a place where we keep no record of wrongs and patiently care for the hurting. Maybe you intentionally evade Christian community and don't show love. You know you're born again, but you're evading Christian community because you know you're wandering from God. And every time an opportunity comes back where you could go back into Christian community, you like shrink and shrivel back like a snail doused with salt because you just feel guilty around other Christians. And you feel guilty around other Christians because you know that you're not living the life that God wants you to live. Friend, if you are wandering today, I would say to you, do not keep at an arm's length the one whose arms are open to you. Your father is waiting for you to come back and he will receive you with open arms. Let Harvest be a church where we welcome others as Christ has welcomed us, no matter what their struggle. There's lots of other reasons that you might justify for not loving. Maybe you struggle to love because uh, that person's personality quirks or rub you the wrong way. Doesn't he know that the fork goes on the other side of the plate? Gah! Uh, maybe some of you uh, struggle to invest in a Christian community because whenever you see that individual, you know what that person has and you want what that person has and your envy keeps them from loving you. Maybe you uh, can't look at that individual as a brother or sister and intentionally evade them because you might not admit this out loud, but you know in your head that you have a tendency to racially stereotype people. And you can't treat them as a brother or a sister because you look at them as different or other than you. Maybe you can't show Christian love to others because uh, you give preferential treatment to those who look good. They got nice clothes, they're all put together and you wanna be seen around them but not the people who are broken and hurt. Many of these reasons that I gave are actually instances of examples where the New Testament church did not love. And if these churches failed to love in that way, certainly we also can fail to love in this way, can't we? I know I can. Remember, the key to love is not in words, but in actions from a heart that is open to others because it's open to God. It's not just a show. 
I'm not just doing it so that other people will see it. I'm doing it because I know God loved me even though I can't give anything to return to him. So I will love others without discrimination knowing that I've received God's love. Open your heart to God and you'll see that God's, God's heart is open to the world and to all his children. Harvest, love is the most significant virtue in the Christian faith. But it's not a simple task. It's not an easy task. It's way more than just tolerance. It's way more than just empathy. It's way more than just civility. It's way more than just generosity. True Christian love cannot be something that is manufactured by our own effort, but produced within us by the Holy Spirit. So, little children, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us be a people who abide with God's presence. Let us be a people who understand what it means that we overcome with Christ and let God's love be perfected in us. And let us be a people who obey from the heart, a heart that is open to others because first, it's open to God. Without love, we have nothing. But in love, the world will know that we are his disciples and our God will be glorified. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father in heaven, thank you for the love of Jesus Christ that has been shown to us. Yet, forgive us. Forgive me, Lord God, for instances too frequent of lovelessness, intentionally evading those who I should be loving. Thank you, Father, that we have overcome with Christ. As the scripture says, as he is, so are we also in this world. Father, let your church recognize that we need not fear. Let your church recognize that you are love. Oh, and Father, let us not close ourselves off to others but display your love freely, especially here in this church, Lord God. Especially here. For how can we love the world if we cannot love the family of faith? How can we love the world if we cannot love our brothers and sisters? Forgive us, Lord, for envying others, for giving preferential treatment to others, for diminishing others according to their ethnicity. Forgive us, Lord God. We open our hearts towards you, Father. Show us your love as your children. In Jesus' name, amen.